Welcome to the most excellent 80s movies podcast. It's the podcast where a filmmaker, a comedian, and their very ethical friends uh, play a game with the 80s movies that we think we love or might have missed. And this is War Games, a movie selection from 1983. David Lightman was a master at computer games. A fast thinker. Oh, David! Maybe you could tell us who first suggested the idea of reproduction without sex. Your wife? Get out, baby. And a promising student at an old game. Hi. With an electronic twist. I don't think that I deserved it, F. Do you? You can go to jail for that. Only if you're over 18. This computer company is coming out with these amazing new games in a couple of months. And I want to play those games. Wow. What? We got something. He found the right code word to play the game. We're in. But it was the wrong computer. Shall we play a game? I can't ask you that. How about mobile, thermal, nuclear, war? Sorry. All right. <laughs> Clever playing soon at a theater near you. Oh, so clever and sassy. Um, <laughs> uh, I am Chrissy Lenz, uh, director of the Neighborhood Comedy Theater uh, in Mesa, Arizona. And uh, with me, as per usual, is uh, exhausted filmmaker Nathan Blackwell. Greetings, everyone. You <laughs> see, he's so tired he can't even <laughs> respond in a reasonable amount of time. <laughs> Um, and super excited to have uh, back with us our uh, ethical podcasting friend, Matthew Fox of the Ethical Panda Podcast. Um, this was your pick and I can't wait to talk about it. You love this movie. I do. I really do. Um, well, it's funny though. I had not realized this, but when I look at the, when I look at the two movies that I've picked, Apparently, I have a thing for movies that seem like they're about suburban rich kids getting into hijinks, and they're actually much more serious movies with real social commentary of the time. So I didn't know I had a particular subgenre of 80s movies, but here we are. Well, I mean, perhaps that's what sowed the seeds of your like interest in in like deep ethics is is like all of these fun popcorn movies that are really about so much more underneath it all. It's really true. It's really true. And it, it's funny because my father-in-law, my, my wife's father, he is very into artificial intelligence and um, particularly about the, the idea of computers learning and being able to get better and better at learning. And he does some kind of super high-tech AI thing professionally, and he loves talking about it. He loves building robots. And he and I are, are, are trying to put together a podcast specifically about AI and the ethics of AI and things like that. And so, you know, sometimes you watch a movie and you realize there's some buzzwords that just kind of went over your head. This time I was so much more focused on the the idea of kind of the computer learning aspect of it because and he, I, he's coming to dinner tonight. And I'm looking forward to talking to him about this movie because that that's exactly what this movie is. And I was doing some research. This movie is considered by many people to be 
first of all, one of the first hacking movies um, in terms of, you know, kind of about a, a teen hacker type. And also one of the first of the what if the computers took over AI is AI scary kind of movies. So, yeah, it's kind of a really, really fun one. Yeah, it is all of that in a very surprising way, as you said. Nathan, is this has this been a favorite of yours? Uh, it's it's one that I haven't revisited in a long time, but it's definitely one that I had seen a couple of times, especially like it coming on TV and it being like fun. And, you know, and when I caught it, it was still the first of its kind. It was still very novel. You know, it must have been sometime in the 80s or, or even early 90s. And so it was the whole concept was still really cool. Like we were still playing on either Atari or Atari had only been a couple of years. And so that technology was still the norm, you know, or that was the contemporary. And, and yeah. And, and besides that, it's just, um, you know, it's just a fun thriller for younger people. Yeah. And it's an odd mix. Like, so I've never seen this. Uh, and it was like mainly because it's like, Oh, computer war games. That you're not appealing to me. Um, I think if I had known a little bit more of like the fun of the two of them being like, oopsie doopsie, um, it might have appealed to me more. But yeah, I had never seen it before this uh, this day. And, and it is fun. I've never felt like this movie was like a cute rom-com with an adorable um, Ali Sheedy and like super cute Matthew Broderick like that part of the story seemed uh like very much not included in the like it's about computers it's about AI it's about uh, you know should war be fought by people or should war be fought by machines it was definitely very interesting listening to that trailer because I think if I had heard that trailer I wouldn't have seen this movie and I mean the reality is this is one of those movies I was probably five or six when it came out I, can't, I don't remember the first time I saw it. I just remember it being a movie we had on VHS and and playing a lot because I really loved it. And it's funny, the more I watch it, the more I get out of it, especially because I think as, as, as you were kind of saying, it works on so many different levels. It is a kind of teenage hijinks movie. It is uh, a pretty serious commentary on uh, nuclear war and kind of the politics of the day. You know, this was made in the early 80s when uh, Reagan was kind of pushing the idea that a nuclear war could be won. So the whole idea of this whole movie about how you can't win nuclear war is actually a pretty intense commentary on the politics of the day. And it's also a really beautiful little romance movie. You know, I mean, Ali Sheedy is just the, you know, very much kind of the America's sweetheart of it, which is kind of funny if you've seen The Breakfast Club and, you know, Ali Sheedy from that, a very different kind of role for mm-hmm. her, um, although also wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's just one of these movies where, like, every one of the, of the side characters feels well done. There's a lot of humor. There's a lot of in-depth stuff. There's a lot of kind of, like, hidden little gems. It, it feels like, just like a very well-put-together movie for me. I agree. I In the beginning of it, we really get... sort of two beginnings the first beginning is the norad beginning where it's the two men who are going to take up their post uh in the underground bunker where you like just sit and look at buttons and then you have to turn the keys to launch the nukes um and did you guys notice that the entire time that we're seeing them like do what like a walk and talk into the procedure of getting into norad they're talking about weed they're talking about marijuana. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As they walk into Norad. Uh-huh. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it was meant to be that they were so familiar and friendly with each other, you know, so casual. And then when the shit gets real, they're ready to fulfill their duty, including when um, Frazier's dad. No, it's not, it's not. that's not Frazier's dad. Who is that? That's um, uh, Leo McGarry from the West Wing. Yeah. Yeah, Leo McGarry for the West Wing, and then baby Michael Madsen. Um, Wait, that's not really he, him, is when it? He, when uh, Leo McGarry is that Michael freezes, Madsen? It is. It is Michael Madsen. Oh boy! It is. And so when when uh, when Leo McGarry freezes up and can't launch the nukes, 
um, Michael Madsen pulls a gun on him and tells him yeah. to fulfill his order. Um, but up until that, though, they're like, weed, weed, weed. <laughs> I think it's a great scene on a couple of levels. First, just in terms of, I love that it's so mundane. You know, it's this idea. You think of like the people who launch the missiles are like super serious all the time. But yeah, to them, it's just another way to go to work. Uh, in terms of, you know, they're arguing about traffic and they're talking about weed and all this stuff. And, and yet at the same time, it also, it feels super intense, you know, and it feels like this, um, to me, it really helps kind of set the tone of the movie of, yeah, it's fun, it's playful, but what we're talking about is people who literally have the power to end the world. And, and the idea that these people would be supposed to do it Without like no one tells them, by the way, the Russians attacked, by the way, here's what's happening. They're just told out of the blue, launch your missiles with no problem. And it's funny to me because the whole kind of conceit of the movie is that the government thinks the fact that 22 percent of the people wouldn't do it is a problem. And I think and I think as the audience is supposed to think like only 22 percent. Why the hell isn't more? You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And at this point, uh, you know, America has thousands and thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons. We have we have, uh, you know, we've scaled down significantly since um, due to Gorbachev and Reagan. Mm-hmm. Um, but and and then could effectively obliterate, you know, we, we have well over t- more than 22 percent of what we need in terms of, of that. But they're still seeing that as a failure, a failure mm-hmm. in the system, right? In the power, in the power of, of, of what we need to present, you know, in our against our great adversary. Um, I just <laughs> thought it was an odd choice, writer wise, because in 1983, for two people who work deep in the government to even admit that they have like seen marijuana, you know, like to me would be very taboo. Like they should have been talking about their favorite brands of coffee or like what the sports teams are doing. And it seemed very weird to me for them to be talking in like a very deep way about like the flower and the resin of the different strains of marijuana. I just thought I was like, what's happening? Do they not know Nancy Reagan or what? I I mean, I think, I think I, 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 Again, I was six years old at the time. I can't speak as an expert, but my understanding is that like the 60s and 70s had been such a permissive time. And then it's during the 80s when you get much more of the anti-drug stuff, as well as a lot of other kind of cultural stuff that we think of as just like, oh, now is like the most like, no, like this it, all goes in cycles, you know? So, yeah, it was, def- it was definitely an interesting choice by the writers that I liked a lot. So they go, you know, oh, no, 22% of people didn't blow up everybody else. Um, And Dabney Coleman is like, well, we should have computers be in charge of this because they won't have those icky human uh, quandaries uh, about blowing everyone up. So let's switch to a fully computerized uh, system called the Whopper. Cut to high school. Uh, and then we get to meet <laughs> Matthew <Right>. Broderick <laughs> and Ali Sheedy, like being adorable um, in a, was it like a biology class? Yeah, because they're talking mm-hmm. about asexual reproduction with his quite famous comeback to the teacher, which I have to admit, I am all for an 80s movie in which the teachers are terrible and our heroes are wisecracking. <laughs> and that, that felt was- across the line, even for me, who like wants, I was like, uh, commenting on a teacher's love life with their spouse. Let's let's, let's maybe yeah, pull back a bit. Yeah, he should be expelled for that. Yes, <laughs> um, but also that guy was not a good teacher. Like, if everybody in your class is getting an F, you're not giving them the information in a way yeah. that is meaningful. Yeah, you're not being a good teacher. The amount of public shaming of like holding up people's failing grades, like that's yeah. uh-huh. ah the '80s. A lot of therapists got rich off of the students from that class is all I'm going to say. What I was confused about, too, is that we do see Matthew uh-huh. Broderick in an arcade before school, question mark? The, t- the only way I can figure the timing of that, and I want to talk about arcades in general, because talk about like a staple of the 80s teen movie. But yeah, I was thinking about that. Like, Also, why is this other kid there? The only way I can figure it is if this is a like 
he's out on his lunch break. And this is one of those schools, like in my school, you could leave the school property to go to lunch. And so maybe like he went on his lunch to go play this game a little bit, but then he has to rush back to get to school. I don't know what that other kid's doing there, but you know, it's Seattle. Maybe they've got weird things. Maybe he's being homeschooled. Who knows? Um, that Those details didn't line up to me, but I, but I do want to ask you to, for me, at least growing up in New York city, like going to the arcade with a roll of quarters was definitely a thing I did a lot as a kid. And it feels to me like a scene like this in the arcade, you know, it, it's very much kind of a way of showing that a kid is both very geeky, but also very intelligent. Um, it's kind of the same thing, but like kind of somewhat socially awkward, but somewhat intelligent. Uh, am I right that this is kind of a staple of 80s movies? You you all are kind of much more the experts than I am. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like it's hitting all the sweet um, spots. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Last Starfighter or and I think that's kind of the thing, too, is like, yep, you didn't you didn't have computers at home. You didn't have games in the palm of your hand necessarily. Mm-hmm. Like even when I was a kid, like if someone had an, an Atari, that was a big deal. You know, so you didn't get right. the opportunity mm-hmm. to play quite as much. So the idea that he would be um, either before school or at lunch being like, I just got to get $10 worth of Galaga in, you know, and how simple those games are comparatively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they, they were the, uh, the cabinets, like the, the video game cabinets, you know, the arcade games, they were they had better graphics and um and they were also uh, uh more addictive in the way that that you had to kind of beat and defeat them in in than i think than a lot of home games which um didn't push like like the arcades like you had to keep playing you had to kill and then it it, it you know yeah, you died easier and then just it just stimulated that part that addiction in you oh yeah but yeah i mean it's also just like a social space where there's there's other kids and there's music as well that you can kind of get away and be a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could often get popcorn or pizza places like that. And um, mm-hmm. the movies always told me that cute girls would come by and be very impressed with my video game skills. <laughs> that did not happen as often as the movies told it would. Um, but you know, it's, it's a good idea. I do mark one more part of the school scene, you know, I, I'm by no means a computer person. I don't have any idea how hacking works. But one thing that I always think is interesting is the idea that we always think of hacking as primarily about like computer skills and all this, but then often there's a social engineering part of it. Um, you know, there's a, and, and so just the idea of like, what is it that makes him a really good hacker is not that he has like some leap computer skills. He knows where to look for the password. And the fact is the school's really bad at hiding the password. And that, that, that moment just felt so perfect to me and such a like, yeah, at that point in time, it's 1983. These computers don't have security on them. They don't have like high tech firewalls. They just have, you know, you have to have the password. He knows where to have the password because they're not like it's pencil. The E isn't a three. The I isn't an exclamation point. Like mm-hmm. low security. <laughs> yeah. And uh, like back in the day, I mean, uh, like like nowadays with like hacking, you know, it's like, oh, well, I'll run one of my special like subroutines that like brute forces the password and and in reality i think there's a lot more of we have like a long sequence to where he can't get into the system that he wants to that turns out to be like a military system and so he spends like a long like montage of like trying to like do research and to read up and to to figure out more about this, this, the guy who invented the system so he can discover what the password might be. Yeah. Like, I don't think you ever see him do anything particularly high skilled on a computer, but his system is definitely like amazing. Yeah. The way he had the little like cradle to put the phone in and, and was like having it dial all the numbers that seemed pretty high tech to me. Oh, yeah, that was like before Internet or at least Mm -hmm. uh, the audience. That's another thing. This is before like the audience's perception of the Internet, you know, like you wouldn't even really use the Internet for another decade at this point. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I I think I think, Chrissy, you're right. It's definitely high tech in terms of him being able to figure out how to get the phone going. I just more meant in terms of like 
the coding skills, you know, the, the, in terms of the getting into computer code and computer programming, there's none of that. It's all just about, can you hack into these ASCII systems? And, and most of that's like, just, it's it's just the social engineering part. Yeah. And he does, he has to be like, uh, what about games? And the computer's like, oh yeah, we got games. We got tons of games. Um, so that's kind of what happens. So he's trying to impress Ali Sheedy. He he finally gets into the computer. Uh, he asks it to play a game. And he breezes right past chess and checkers and hops into global thermonuclear war. Um, and, of course, thinking that this is a game, as we saw <laughs> so much of in the preview, I mean- they play global thermonuclear war. <laughs> I mean, if given the choice, I mean, come on. I'd say, is there Animal Crossing? <laughs> There's a couple things I need to jump in with that. Please do. First, I, just before he does that, when they hack into Pan Am, I just noticed I, I am currently shopping for tickets to Europe because of a wedding that a cousin of mine is doing. Um, it's $1,300 to fly round trip to Paris, and that's about what it costs today. Um, and so you can just have all sorts <laughs> of talks about like... That's kind of funny when you take into account inflation, but also all the differences in airfare. Like, price is basically the same, um, depending on when you fly, of course, that. But yeah, I, to me, I think this is one of the main points kind of, of the, that the movie's getting to. It's this idea of reducing war to a game, you know? And like, I know that like war games are a thing that is like, it's a way, it's basically like a, a fancy term for simulation. You know, and that gaming theory, game theory is a very important part of economics and military structures and things like that. But just this idea that, like, the computer, he thinks he's playing a game in part because from the computer standpoint, it thinks it's playing a game. And and, and to me, I mean, we just get more into that as the movie goes on. But I feel like that was just that little moment was such, such a great way of highlighting this whole idea of, like, you know, it's not the computer's fault, but from the from the computer's perspective, they've built it to play a game just with very real consequences. Right. The computer doesn't know that there mm-hmm. are con- the computer doesn't know. It thinks that everything's a game. And also the the people who are looking at the computer don't know. There's no way for them to like peek out a window and look and see if they're like visually if there are submarines in the water or planes in the sky. <laughs> they ha- they see them on the screen, and that's a huge part of the suspense, is like is what I'm seeing real or is it a game? Is it the computer telling me what the computer should know? Do I believe it? Because there's no way for me to be like, and they eventually they're like, Hey, um, could you just like look out your window, Airman Rodriguez or whatever? And like peek and see (laughs) if you see anything. And they're like, yeah, no, we don't see anything. But that's it's just this like crux of like, should computers read everything? Maybe someone should also be able to like peek out of the blinds and see uh, what's happening. Uh, but again, Matthew Broderick just thinks we're tapping, tap tapping. They're drinking like cherry Coke. <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. they learn by watching the news, which is perhaps the most unbelievable part of this whole thing is that two teenagers are, are like following the evening news. Um, <laughs> And they're like, oopsie doopsie, we messed up. <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> and I like that she's like, don't worry about it. Just don't. just act natural and you'll be fine. But of course, he gets scooped up and arrested. And here's where I was saying that this kind of has a lot similar in this one regard to the other 80s movie I've talked about with you all, Risky Business, in that I'm pretty sure Tom Cruise's character said a line similar to this, but where he says... You know, Ali Sheedy is saying, like, aren't we getting in trouble? And and Matthew Broderick's character, David, says, no, we're under 18. We can't go to jail. You know, and I think that's kind of, it's just, mm-hmm. to me, a lot of 80s movies were about, this is one of my favorite themes, the idea of, like, teenagers getting in way over their head, you know? And just, he has, I, I think fairly so, no idea that the real consequences of what he's doing, which I think is yeah, just really the- well played. So many um, teenage movies during the 80s, and it's nice to see the spectrum of of different types of stories, especially when adults who are probably bored of seeing the same teenage movies or making the same teenage movies, finding interesting human moral uh, scenarios um, with these as main characters. Right. Like this, this almost 
uh, reminds me of, I mean, this is, this reminds me of that original series Star Trek episode to where, you know, eat, you know, the, the, the enterprise encounters a planet to where instead of just going to war at some point, just, you know, a couple thousand of one side goes into a, a disintegration chamber and kills themselves. And then the other side does that too instead of actually committing a war. Right. And his argument is that, no, war should be messy. It should be atrocious. So you don't want to do it. You know, it should be bloody. It should be messy. It should be terrible, you know? And really what they want is for the system to, to do exactly what they want so that they take out that messy aspect of nuclear war. And this is funny because, I mean, funny, but also kind of prescient. That's the exact same question we're talking about today. You know, one of the reasons why people often really object to drone warfare is the idea that for a person sitting in a bunker a thousand miles away to push a button is psychologically not as intense as being in the plane and pushing the button and watching the missile hit and watching the people die. And that there are some there are some discussions now about would it be better to just program the exact situation into the drone so that a person never has to hit, never ever has to push the button. Um, you know, and I, it's kind of a weird connection, but I think it's very related. Uh, I don't, I, I'm pretty sure that there's no, no place in the uh, United States anymore that has a firing squad as a death penalty. I think it might still be allowed in Utah uh, or for federal crimes <laughs> or something weird like that. But one thing I read was that when you have a firing squad, you always have, like, I think there's four people or five people who have rifles, and there's always one of them whose rifle is loaded with a blank. And you never know who, because the idea is that every person should think that it's possible they weren't the one. That's right. Yeah. And yeah, and to me, there's something so horrific about this idea of we're going to do this horrible thing, but we're going to do it in a way that makes us not have to deal with the ethical problems with it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um because you're right, Nathan, as you were just saying, like it, it should be messy. It should be hard. You should have to be thinking by turning this key, I am killing 60 million people or whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I just think I, the, just those little things the movie does really raise that so well. I think I know that that's true. Um, and I think that there is something um, about like drone operators that is the same theory, which is like, they always have at least two people pushing the buttons in the same way that like one of them isn't really pushing the button, which is bananas. Um, Oh, that's fascinating. And I like, there was an episode of bones Uh about it or an episode of law and order about it. Or one of my procedurals was told me this fact. I'm sure that the people of the interwebs will be like, it was this and you are wrong. Um, but <laughs> yeah, they they arrest Matthew Broderick. And there's one line in particular when he's talking to the. You're doing a great job of going point by point to the plot, and I'm jumping all over the place. Um, Please, but but there's just on that on that topic where where he's asking uh, David Matthew Broderick is talking to the computer, trying to understand why it wants to keep playing the game, and he asks, you know, what is the point? Uh, trying to get like, what's the point of nuclear war? And and the computer's answer is to win the game, and it's it's done in this like complete monotone. It's not at all what computers I think would have sounded like at the time, but like it's just it's so it's so perfectly emotionless. And just this idea of the point is to win, you know, with a military. With, with think about how many times we see you know with friends of ours or parents or companies or or organizations that are fighting with each other. And you kind of want to ask, like, wait, what is this fight about? And because no one remembers anymore. All they know is the point is to win. You know, it, it's and and so having the computer just have that perspective of, I don't know, I, the computer knows nothing about global politics, nothing about stopping war by fighting war. All it knows is the goal is to win. And I, I just love that so much. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's kind of a crazy aspect of it because it's it's still playing the game is what we learn is that. The computer still thinks it's playing a game. Uh, but there's a little scene while Matthew Broderick is at NORAD where there are tour groups. Do we think there are tour groups? Mm-hmm. Nathan, any thoughts on tour groups? <laughs> Maybe there are. <laughs> I mean, talk about like 
desensitizing war. Like you've got people walking around being like, ooh, ah. And they'd make the woman push the button. They make a woman push a button. And they're like, it's fine. Push the button, Carol. It's fine. Push the button, Carol. And she does. And they're like, oh, you shit. You just blew up Russia. And she's like, what? Oh, my God. That was mean. <laughs> okay. So here's the question I have. Who is going to need more therapy? The teenager who had their failing test, like, pointed out to everyone by the awful teacher or the nice lady, Carol, who spends three seconds thinking she just started a global nuclear war by pressing the wrong button. Like, in both cases, maybe be a little more aware of the people you're dealing with. So apparently they still actually do give tours of NORAD. Okay. All right. Right now. Today. So it's a thing. Should we all go? <laughs> For the podcast? Yeah. <laughs> uh, if your budget has enough to fly me out to Denver, sure. Yeah. There was also one line during that tour that I was curious what your thoughts were. Um, they say, you're not supposed to be running in here. Someone could get hurt. And this is in the <laughs> room that's planning out global thermonuclear war. Was that a reference to Dr. Strangelove and that whole line There's of no like fighting in the war room? Exactly. Like that that's intentional, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> I, I I feel like it's gotta be, yeah. Yeah, it had to be. That was good. Um uh so he breaks out of the prison that he's in by recording the dial tone sound that opens the door and playing back the dial tone sound that opens the door. Um and I think I wished there was more of that. Mm -hmm. like more MacGyvering of him understanding computers and like a, you know, and just like, it's a function of the way that he thinks he understands computers. Cause we meet this like obscure antisocial genius who, of course we always have to have an obscure antisocial mm -hmm. genius who invented the, the Whopper computer. And so I, I think we're like meant to, put together that like certain people are just wired differently and like Matthew Broderick gets it in the same way that like Dr. Is it Faulkner? Mm -hmm. Dr. Falk gets it? Stephen like, Falcon. Dr. Falcon. Falcon. Dr. Stephen Falcon. Um, but I wanted more of that. More MacGyver. I know how to trick the computer. Um, we don't really get it. He escapes by joining the tour and then um they find this island where the seemingly dead Dr. Faulkner is alive and just disenchanted and sort of hopes the world will get blowed up because he lost his family. Yeah, I mean, I think he's supposed to he's supposed to represent that position that I think was pretty prevalent in the 80s. It's funny because uh, the movie Watchmen, the, co the comic book Watchmen comes out of the same idea of nuclear war is inevitable. You know, I think especially at this time when you'd had sort of this gradual move towards peace in the 70s and a lot of these kind of smaller wars, which are awful, to be clear, but kind of more of a sense of like, you know, nuclear disarmament is slowly starting and we're, we're, we're more accepting that a nuclear war is unwinnable. And then along comes Reagan going, no, 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 if we have Star Wars, if we have the right technology, we can win a nuclear war. I think there was a, a real rise in kind of existentialism and, and kind of like dread and Particularly for his character, you know, I think in his, in a lot of ways, it's more about the fact that his wife and child died in this terrible accident. But also, I think he just sort of has, he's given up. You know, he thinks that computers are smarter than humanity, and maybe if humanity is wiped out, that it's not the worst thing in the world. And just, you know, and it's it's a cliche, and I would have liked more of that character and more of their time together. But it's, again, that very 80s teenager, like, the teenagers give him hope. You know, they give him hope to try again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The uh, screenwriters um, started this project specifically interested in the idea of genius and geniuses. You know, um, they were directly uh, influenced by Stephen Hawking's and wanted to make even kind of like the 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 doctor in this um even more like uh similar to Stephen Hawking's but uh, yeah it was just that idea of like two geniuses meet each other um and influence each other and eventually it became kind of a a fun thriller adventure concept 
Um, but yeah, I, I just to kind of circle back just a touch <laughs> um, when Matthew Broderick is like MacGyvering the the phone booth. I remember that it's like some some movies have like that lasting cultural impact. And, you know, and then you start seeing cliches throughout other movies. And this, in my mind, this movie created that to where you can basically hotwire a phone. Yes. You know, that you could use like a recording or some other like technique, which you later see like some like pastiche of it in other movies. It's like, oh, well, yeah, that's just a thing. Like not even like going through the full like technicality of how it works um that's what i remember um one of the kind of like residual movie cliches that this created Mm -hmm. but um but yeah it's interesting to see the perception of what is a computer genius back at the like the formation of Mm -hmm. like computers right i mean just the size of the computer you know like i the phones that all of us have in our hands probably have a hundred times the computing power of that, you know, whopper that's the size of a room and that, you know, mm-hmm. is doing things because of the flashing lights, you know? Right. Uh, and probably giving off like so much heat that people are getting sunburned. Right. It, it also, I don't know if this movie created the cliche, but it certainly becomes very much a cliche, which is that no matter how intense the security guard is, if you put him in a room with a pretty woman, he will hit on the woman in very inappropriate ways that will distract him enough that you can get away from him. Yep. Like that is just now such a cliche. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this movie gave birth to it or just is continuing it, but it's so there. Right. I, I, I feel like it's continuing the grand tradition. Uh-huh. That's very And that fair. poor woman is just fair. like, I am not going to stop typing. I get out of here. <laughs> right. Um, he yeah, that guard was doing an okay job at the beginning, and then he just started like like upping the ante on his game, and it was just not it was just not working out for anyone. And it's funny because I remember that like every time you watch a movie again, you notice new details. For some reason, I had never before noticed that that the 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 receptionist, whatever her position is, she has a bunch of um, trophies on a table behind her. And I remember looking at those trophies and going like, is that? Is that supposed to be her kid? Is that her? And then they talk about how she's very good at tennis. So I was like, oh, okay. Now I, I see I see what you did there. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad that she got an aspect of her Also, just going back a bit to how he sort of gets arrested like that, I thought the whole scene with the FBI was so well done in terms of, you know, until now this has seemed kind of happy and playful. And, you know, he's bought them tickets to Paris. He's changed her grades. Which, by the way, she said she doesn't want to change your grades. David, consent is important. Don't change your grade until she says she wants to, even if she decides later she <laughs> wanted to. But, you know, it's fun. It's playful. There's maybe some consequences. But then that scene with the FBI and, like, the the van surrounding him, the, just the creepy suspense factor was so good. And I thought that was such a good way of, like, transitioning you to, no, this is a lot more real than we thought this movie was going to be. Yeah, and and like Dabney Coleman just like straight mm-hmm. up believe, and they they even say like this is the ideal candidate to get radicalized. He's smart, but he doesn't do good with school. He's disconnected from his parents. Like he doesn't have any friends. Like here, clearly he's uh, he's been radicalized. But so they they do convince the disenchanted doctor to come back with them to NORAD and and try to sort things out. And when they get back, it's at DEFCON, whatever the worst one is, and their whole crew is, like, rushing to get through doors that are, like, closing right behind them. And, like, the the gates are chain link, though. They're like, the gate! And then they drive over it because it's chain link? Mm-hmm. Then they're in NORAD, and... Um, <laughs> that was pretty great how they got, like, one of the soldiers on their side, you know? Like there was some off-screen moment of okay, they've fully they've fully gotten this dude on board, yeah. and now he is putting the pedal to the metal, and he is going to get them there. And they when they finally get in, it's like oh, we yeah, thought you it were was dead. A fun little thing. Yeah, the whole thing of like hold the door for me seems a little ridiculous, but you know it. That to me definitely felt like some studio executive saying we need this part to be more suspenseful. 
you know, the, the whole like, will because of course they're going to get into the Like, there's never any doubt about that. But, you know, movie's going to movie. I thought it was fun. Movie's got I liked a movie. I, there's nothing I love more than driving over a chain link fence when you're like, no, the gate. We will drive through it. We're in a military vehicle. <laughs> um, and then so they get into the room and they're like, hi, I'm not dead. I'm not. This is all a game. Uh, you know, don't blow everyone up. And they they have this sort of back and forth where it's like, yeah, really? Yeah, no, really. But really? I mean, yeah, really. Mm, but really? And they And then they are like, just let the attack happen. And let's see. Mm-hmm. And they do. And here I got to say, I think one of the other brilliant things this movie does is that if you look at like the cast of characters in the war rooms, the crusty old general who talks in a way that's kind of offensive to people and just takes no guff from anyone, you think he's going to be the biggest villain. Mm-hmm. But he's actually been the one who's the most suspicious of the computer system the whole time. And so the fact that he's the one who gets to say, no, we're not going to press the launch button. We're going to wait. I really kind of love because I get to like, it, and it makes sense. Like he's the one who's, he trusts the people, not the the machines. And you can call him a Neo Luddite and like, that's fair. But I really love that he gets to be the one who's like, no, no, no we're not going to do it. I do though think if you have some people who you think are going to be totally fine, but there's a small chance you're about to be obliterated in nuclear hellfire. Maybe don't say, hey, we just want to hang out on the phone with you while you may or may not be obliterated by nuclear hellfire, right? Like maybe just wait till five seconds after and make the call and be like, y'all good? You're all good? Okay, just check in. Never mind. Like, I don't know why that midshipman or whatever needs to go through that experience of, oh my God, we're about to, no, actually we're fine. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Um, and the, it sort of asks the question again, hey, human, do you trust this machine? Yes. But really? Yes. If I ask three times, though, you're right. I don't. Let's let's not trust the machine. Right. Um, and then what they end up having to do is, like, engage the computer in tic-tac-toe in order for it, it to learn that there is like such a thing as an a uh, Kobayashi Maru, right? The unwinnable game. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Some, some games just suck. This is the thing that I have really a much better experience of now because I've been kind of learning a lot about artificial intelligence from my father-in-law that machine learning has been kind of the idea behind pushing artificial intelligence for a long time. And that instead of, you know, we can teach it like, okay, in chess, if they move the pawn this way, you should move the rook this way. But that the real goal of artificial intelligence is where instead of just telling it, the machine can learn on its own. And that often part of the idea is that sometimes machines can learn faster on their own. And one of the things that goes into that is that machines will, but machines will still learn based on your starting principles. So for example, when people have racial biases that they use to design machines, not that they're like, ha, let's make the machine racist, just, you know, the biases we all have, those biases will often come out. But part of the hope is that as machines get to learn on their own, especially if you program them well, they can kind of overcome that. And and that's what I, th- I think you kind of are seeing here is a machine that started with the idea of a war is winnable. Your job is to win the war, but was never really given a chance to push that further. Once it does push that a lot further, it realizes no matter how this starts, the nuclear war ends with everybody losing. And it, to me, it's such a beautiful like understanding of at least 1982 understandings of artificial intelligence and that literally like 39 years later, we're the technology, the phone stuff, all of it's pretty silly. But the base idea of machine learning, at least as this real layperson understands it, is, is pretty true now, still 39 years ago. And also just kind of such a wonderful lesson for it to learn in terms of like, yeah, this whole idea of trying to win nuclear war is just ridiculous. Yeah, uh, this was, I mean, uh, this was an important mm-hmm. movie um, that was the counter argument to we've got to be so powerful you know, of the, in the eighties, there was also 
there was a TV movie directed by Nicholas Meyer, and I forget the name of it. Day know, after um, tomorrow, but it was like a hard look at. Yeah, I think so. I think so, and it was star studded, and it showed what happened once a nuclear war happened, mm-hmm. and it didn't show like what's going on in the general's office or like, what the president's doing. Maybe it did. Maybe I'm just forgetting that part. But it showed like what was actually happening from the point of view of the people who had to survive it. You know, the people at the hospitals, the people trying to get their family to safety. And and I and I do feel like these movies had an effect, you know, movies like this war games, because it's it not only preaches that war is unwinnable. But also because the movie was popular and people got to see it. Right. And it was then a voice that that was in their head when mm-hmm. these debates came up, you know, and then like the, 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 the TV movie to where these movies would get screened in the White House. Mm-hmm. You know, Ronald Reagan, who watched a lot of movies, did screen war games. Yeah. You know, and did like it. Although apparently the one big... um change that reagan did in regard to the movie was pushing for a computer security act so maybe Mm. learning the wrong lesson (laughs) but apparently yeah there was a huge uptick in people using modems in 1984 that's in part attributed to this movie um there was some other discussion about like information technology and stuff that came out of this movie uh so yeah it's a a lot of different kind of things that you know it's funny because when my memory of it was it being a silly teenagers in the 80s movie kind of like as we talked about before with risky business and then when i watched it again as adult realized like oh no there's so much more to this movie and this this movie is really entertaining but it's also um a victim to uh you know the novelty of technology back then now seeming antiquated and us seeming like oh well we've lost nuclear nuclear war is not a, a problem anymore now that the the cold war is over you know, even though yeah. that's not true. Um, and these things being dated. And it's not a movie that kids will gravitate to and watch mm-hmm. these days. It's not something that in terms of that gets recycled like, you know, like a lot of other movies. Um, because it's not as timely in well, that regard. I had a definite nostalgia factor for the ASCII graphics that we were seeing on the screen. But it's if you're used to anything modern, oh yeah, it's not what you're gonna like. Oh yeah, like the the sequence where the 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 um the simulated missile impacts are are happening is fantastic. Like I love that. It's like it's like missile commander taken to the nth degree, and yeah, it's it's better than anything I've seen um, that you see like in modern movies, like in in like Terminator Twelve or whatever, to where you're watching. You know, uh, all the missiles fly like it, it's just so I effective. I like the cooing sound that the computers make when they're like, brr, brr, brr. like I think they're so cute. Um, <laughs> I love the graphics. I love the way the blinking lights look. Uh, and I, I think like if you have to like if you have to watch movies to like learn the origin story of like blah blah blah, this should be put in the rotation of like this was early days of computers and what people thought that they could do. You know, and it's also a good movie. So, like, it should get recycled more. It should be brought out and trotted out and put up in, like, revival screenings um, more, I feel like. And it never really gets to the question of, like, yeah, will the computer eventually learn that people are the real trouble with planet Earth and seek to destroy us? Right. Which is kind of, I think, the interesting kind of question at the heart of it is like on the one hand the point of the movie is that like using computers to take out the human factor is really bad but it's also the like that sometimes the computer can figure things out better than that the humans can you know and and i think and again this is kind of to to me where the ethics of ai come in a lot that that where i'm coming more and more to is that that that's the idea of like is the human smarter than the computer the computer smarter than the human is kind of the wrong question that in reality figuring out how to balance the two kind of inputs can, can make a lot more sense. Just also as a smaller point, um, one thing that I, I think is really interesting is the way uh, the Professor Falcon kind of, he goes through this personal tragedy and then he kind of loses himself in computers. And I think that's something that also 
makes a lot of sense to me, you know, in terms of like this horrible thing has happened that, that literally you can't explain. It's just this random car crash. There's no reason for it. It's just awful luck or fate or whatever kind of thing you want to describe it. There's no real answer to it. And something I think happens a lot is you have people go through horrible things like that or something happens they just don't understand turning to computers where there are specific rules for everything, where everything happens for a reason makes a lot of sense. And I think you were kind of saying this, uh, Chrissy, I would have loved a lot more time with this character because I think he's such a fascinating character, but I just, I just thought that detail was so well done. It makes me think now that you mentioned that Matthew of like, you know, how Tony Stark creates the Iron Man suit and Tony Stark creates all this stuff. And then he's got the military people who are like, uh, we should use, I think Dabney Coleman says at one point, yeah, he was my friend. We created the Whopper together, but he couldn't see the military possibilities. And I think there's maybe a little of that in like Iron Man, maybe. Yeah, I think it's very true. Yeah, the idea of like, does this technology have to have military con- and like, is it your responsibility to think about what the, the, the technology could be used for and, and, and all of that? Mm-hmm. The other thing I want to bring up, and I want to kind of ask you about this. Again, watching as a young kid, Ali Sheedy, how can you help but have a crush on her? I, I thought the romance, it was so well done. Watching it today, I'm her character, Jennifer, does push a little bit to help support him towards the end. But is she the kind of 80s character who's mostly there to look pretty and to kiss our hero when when he does good things? Or do you think there's something more? Because I, I do think that is one of the... Th- you can call it a part of the eighties, but like it, it doesn't feel like in terms of like giving female characters agency and importance to the plot beyond just looking good. This movie maybe is not the best. Agree. Yeah, no, she truly is just there to be another fun teenager um, to remind us that he is a fun teenager and that like, he's this weird computer kid. Oh, but she's a normal kid who likes the weird computer kid. That's what she's there for. Right. They keep showing her working out, which I thought was very weird. Like she jogs and then she's like stretching in her bedroom when he calls. So that's 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 they gave the women in this uh, movie athletics. They're like, oh, we got the women are seeming kind of flat. What should we do? Uh, This one likes tennis. That one works out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Probably a big improvement, though, from the (laughs) uh, the 70s. But uh... true. And the, the the one in the war room itself is very good at running down a hallway in high heels. Uh, she keeps <laughs> saying um, how many codes it has figured out. Oh, it's got three codes. Yep. It's got four codes. Yep. Phase one of uh, yeah. of gender inclusion <laughs> is fitness. Mm-hmm. Um, so at a scale of DEFCON 1 to DEFCON 10, um, you know, where DEFCON 10 is the best... Uh, 80s movie what what level of defcon is <laughs> war games for you matthew i think this is an eight i think it's to me it's it's definitely one of my favorites um and part of that's just my own bias and that it hits the things that i really love in terms of some of the ethical questions i think the humor in it is really good i think there's a lot of kind of fun little references like at one point um he says as he's like figuring out the hacking part of it i have you now and he's very clearly saying that in the Darth Vader voice. And that was kind of a fun little like reference to something that, you know, that's the kind of joke that probably wouldn't have aged well if it wasn't for the fact that Star Wars is still just as big 40 years ago, uh, 40 years later. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the, the the female part of it could have been better. I would have liked a lot more of Stephen Falcon's character. Some of it, I think, you know, could be cut a little bit, but. Um, yeah, if nothing else, for the fact that the issues it's dealing with are so relevant to us today in terms of like, how do we use computers and AI and machines to make war nicer or to make war easier or to make it easier for things to happen? I, I think it's a very relevant movie. So I would give it an eight. What about you, Nathan? How many DEFCONs? I think I'm going to go with eight as well. Like, you know, when you finish the movie and you just kind of have a gut feeling about it, like, you know, it, it, it does like the technology is lo-fi compared to what we're used to these, these days, but in terms, and and there are certainly weaknesses in in the the story. Um, But ultimately it, it really does come to a satisfying end. 
Like if you nail the landing, um, it does a lot to sure up anything that maybe wasn't um, totally working for you. If it just like has, and I feel like this movie has like a really iconic movie ending. Um, yeah. Which I thought works really well. Um, so yeah, I'm just gonna I'm gonna give it an, an eight. The, the computer just saying that line, "How about a nice game of chess?" is to me such an iconic mm-hmm. moment that I will like. I hear it referenced yeah. all the time. And I love the line, you know, the the only winning move is not to play. Um, so great. Uh, although I did want a little something at the end, like mm-hmm. what what mm-hmm. becomes yeah, it... of little baby Broderick? Like what becomes of all of these people like i i was curious like i would have loved a post credits you know of course we weren't doing that then uh but i would have loved like just a post credit scene or like you know if we're doing an 80 style like a freeze frame where it's like dabney coleman got yelled at by the president matthew broderick got an a in biology like tell us what happened to them um i think you're both right i think this movie is an eight I do think it's a Matthew Broderick movie that will later pretty much invent the idea of the after credit yeah. scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But yeah, mm-hmm. no, we're, yeah. we're not there yet. <laughs> um, and I did, th- I do think that you see, like, you see that there is something in Matthew Broderick. You're like, oh, that's he's going to be somebody. He's got the spark. He's got the lovable scamp vibe. Um, so, what would be your deep cut recommendation, Matthew? Like, if people like war games what should they watch and if they don't haven't seen war games what would they like that would get them to war games oh okay i hadn't thought about i mean the first thing i'm going to say and i i know this is kind of prescient because uh i understand y'all are gonna be talking about it pretty soon but um nathan you were saying before about how this movie starts out being about geniuses and doesn't quite go there and i was like and the first thing that came to me was well if you want a movie that actually is just about like high school college geniuses and the weird things they come up with weird science is a great example of that. <laughs> um, kind of mentioned it before, but if you like kind of um, again, the teen movie that th- this one, I think is much closer to a teen movie, but I also think has a lot of serious things to say about being a teenager. And for me, at least was very relevant to getting through my high school teenage days. Um, the other great teenage uh, Matthew Broderick movie, right. Ferris Bueller's day off, I think is definitely one. Um, and I think, I think, though, from the AI side, honestly, to me, I think watching something like the Terminator movies or the Matrix movies, um, just for the questions they ask about, like, in both of those movies, the assumption is that if the computers take over, everything is bad and we have to go to war. And I feel like this movie is sort of like the, this movie is the is part of the discussion that gets us there, you know, of like, is that actually true? What would happen? So I think, yeah, that that might be a good one. Those aren't eighties no. movies necessarily, but yeah, maybe good places. Well, Terminator, I guess is. Um, perfect. What do you mm-hmm. think, yeah. uh, Nathan? So I'm going to go with arguably. I'm going to use these are air quotes. Arguably, the most uh, realistic hacking movie of all time, Hackers from the <laughs> from 1995. <laughs> Um, and just like if you want to just like uh, continue to ride the high of 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 teenage hackers taking over and taking on the world, uh, I'm going to re- re- recommend just the silly, ridiculous popcorn uh, movie Hackers, which I ho- I hope I hope holds up. Um, but obviously go into it knowing that it's it's a ridiculous, silly fun movie from the night like it's so 90s like if we were doing the the most totally rad 90s podcast this would be like one of the first 10 movies we'd cover like no Um, question yeah that's where i fell in love with angelina jolie was like Uh who who is this bewitching creature (laughs) yeah it's such a great cast uh Uh, yeah fisher steven johnny lee miller Mm -hmm. good one um, so I, I went real world and I want to recommend, uh, barcades. I think that for mm. people who are our age and for, for those a bit younger than us hit a barcade, you know, have some fun, play some of these games, 
uh, and just spend an evening with the video games of our youths. Uh, they, we they just opened one right across the street from the actual real life neighborhood comedy theater uh, called the Beer Research Institute's Tap Room and Arcade. And uh, like we went and hung out and just like popped some tokens in and played Galaga and the, you know, the Battle Mario and Joust. And, uh, you know, of course, they have iconic 90s games too: the Simpsons, the Ninja Turtles, the endless scrawl of, you know, those types of games. And it's so fun. Um, and it's such a good experience, you know, to be like standing up, boop, 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 boop. You only get as long as the quarter lasts. Uh, And there's no way to save your progress unless you get all the way into the end scroll. Mm -hmm. Um, So if if your town has a little barcade, it's probably independently owned. Go support a local barcade business. That's a great thought. I was thinking as I watched this movie and then we talked about it that generally when I go to an arcade today, almost all the games are first person shooters or ones where you kind of get rattled around a lot and it's all 3d and it just, or it's like some version of dance dance revolution type things, right? I I just feel like I'm going to gym class with most of them and nothing wrong if you love that, but I just, I want to go back to a world where you start on the left side of the screen, you run to the right and problems can be fixed by jumping up on top of them. So yeah, hitting up arcades is a great idea. (laughs) Um, I also like uh, I took my son to an arcade recently at a, for like a friend's birthday and it was like a kid casino like all of the games were about winning the tickets and then exchanging the tickets you know digital tickets mm-hmm. uh, but they were very casino like um, which wasn't as fun I think uh, as like like you said running and jumping and smashing smashing buttons smash 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 uh, oops you just blew up New Jersey. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> um, where can people go to uh, find your wonderful podcast, Matthew, and follow and support you? Sure. The easiest thing to do is go to theethicalpanda.com. Uh, and I have that name because I'm part of the Stranded Panda Podcast Network. You can also go to their website. Uh, and on theethicalpanda.com, you'll find the two main podcasts I do, one of which is called Superhero Ethics, uh, the other of which is called the Star Wars Universe Podcast. Uh, we're having a lot of fun on those. We're doing uh, episode by episode coverage of Moon Knight on superhero ethics, as well as talking about some other fun issues. Uh, later today, I'm going to record an episode on Twilight and the ethical issues raised by the Twilight series of uh, movies. Uh, spoiler alert, I'm not a fan, but we have a lot to say, um, which is also perfect, though, because also this week, now that it is on HBO Max and thus available for everyone, uh, I will also be recording on Robert Pattinson in a very different role of the Batman. So uh, a lot of fun stuff there on St- uh, Star Wars Universe podcast. We're doing episode by episode coverage of Rebels as we get closer to the Obi-Wan show. We're also talking about some of the Star Wars books that have come out. And then I also do some other Star uh, podcast projects like this. I was on Marvel Movie Minute talking about Thor for a while, which is how I first got connected to you all because mm-hmm. you were great guests on that. So, yeah, all the stuff I do, as well as all the social media that I'm on and places to find me and talk to me about the, these questions or more, all that can be found at theethicalpanda.com. Uh, Matthew, I cannot wait to hear. I'm gonna. I'm definitely going to listen to Moon Knight because uh, I have. I want to hear your thoughts on that, but I cannot wait to hear <laughs> about Twilight. <laughs> Um, we're we're uh, we're gonna have a lot to say we're gonna have a lot yeah. to, uh, and I, my, my guest is someone who will happily admit to being the teenager who had major thirst for uh edward cullen a, as a kid and now looks back with a mixture of oh god what was i thinking and uh, here i understand so we're gonna talk about the thirst factor we're gonna talk about you know how much it's about you know romanticizing like i'm personally of the belief that edward bella is a more problematically abusive relationship than Harley Joker uh, in terms of how they're romanticized, which is a, a strong stance. Um, we're going to talk about uh, the abortion is wrong movie. It <laughs> just came out of nowhere. We'll, uh, we'll have a lot to say about the, those movies. I cannot wait. I am so excited. <laughs> um, awesome. Yeah. I, I watched it with my teenage daughter. I, you know, I was older when they came out, but I still loved them. And like my teenage daughter is like, Oh my God, mom, what is this? <laughs> so, uh-huh. Very interesting. Um, what about you, Nathan? What can people uh, see and support? 
So the uh, the best uh, place to check out my stuff is uh, squishystudios.com. That's just the uh, the easiest uh, place that kind of like, you know, funnels out to the social medias. But um, yeah, if you're interested in um, uh, following the, the, the trials and travails of uh, our latest project, uh, a feature film, um, you can go to, we've got, uh, you know, uh, the last movie ever made on um, Instagram and Facebook, but you can also just go to Squishy Studios. We usually just repost Love stuff it. there. Yeah, you can. Lazy. Find, uh, there's, it's an exciting time to be making movies where you could be attacked by bees at any, <laughs> any given moment. Um, yay. And uh, you can find me in both the Neighborhood Comedy Theater, The Place, in downtown Mesa, Arizona, right across the street from a lovely barcade. Uh, and uh, you can find me in the interwebs at Most Excellent Chrissy and at uh, NCTPHX, uh, you know, wherever the medias are social. Um, thank you, Matthew, for suggesting this movie and for being such a fun guest as always. Uh can't wait to have you back as we discover even more movies that seem like they're going to be ethically problematic that turn out to be surprisingly relevant <laughs> my pleasure you know anytime i get to podcast without having to do the editing is great for me so uh i'll let you all pick the next movie but let me know sometime when you want to have me on again yay um sounds good yeah and thank you for listening everybody you know do all the podcast things uh push the bu- push the defcon button of giving us a five-star review um tell us what you think we got wrong but with five stars accompanying it i will listen to your point of view if you say five stars also you pronounce things badly i will i will heed you <laughs> uh <laughs> but give me those five stars that's the arrangement Um, Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, when you're out there in the world, uh, remember to keep the most excellent 80s movies podcast motto in mind. Be excellent to each other and party on. Party on, dudes. Party on, dudes. Cool.